Our reading this morning is from Luke chapter 17, which is on page 876 of the Church Bibles. Luke 17, which is on page 876, and verses 1 to 10. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung round his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep Say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me, and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Thank you, Kat, and uh, thank you, Alan, for leading us um, in prayer. Now, have your Bibles open at Luke chapter 17, verses 1 to 10, and uh, we're going to do a little bit of flicking back because this is the end of the section in Luke's gospel that began in chapter 13 and verse 22. And that block of teaching from chapter 13, verse 22, to chapter 17, verse 10, is the third section in the book of Luke. Uh, the book began, uh, section 1, from the beginning through to 9.50, explaining what the salvation that Jesus brings is. And then Luke moved on in section 2 from 9.51 to 13.21, explaining what it means to be a follower. And then in the section that we've been in since Christmas, 1322 to 1710, the focus is on who will be saved. You see the logic in Luke's mind, uh, what salvation is, be clear on that. What it means to be saved, to be a follower, be clear on that. And then the question, well, who will be saved? Just flick back in your Bibles to chapter 13, verse 22 the start of the section. Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And these journey markers is how Luke signals the start of a new section. And then verse 23, someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And that question, Lord, will those who are saved be few? governs the whole of the section through to where we finish today, chapter 17, verse 10. 
It is undeniably a big question. It is undeniably an important question. Who will be saved? Will there be few? Will there be many? Who will be in? Who will not be in? It is a, an important question and a profound and a personal question. Just to shift the pronouns, am I saved? Are you? And through the rest of the section, concluding at 1710, Jesus has been answering that question in all sorts of ways. He's been answering the question, Lord, will those who are saved be few? But notice, while you're still in chapter 13, his first answer to the question. Question, Lord, will those who are saved be few? His first answer, chapter 13, verse 24, enter. It's striking, isn't it? It's not a topic for discussion. It is always the opportunity to enter. And so if the question, Lord, will those who are saved be few, governs the whole section, then the first answer, the invitation, which also is an exhortation from the Lord Jesus to strive to enter through the narrow door, also governs the whole section. And all the way through these chapters and all the way through January and February, as this material has been preached on Sundays, studied in small groups, spoken on at funerals, and that's what happens in a church when a particular area of the Bible burdens you as a church. It comes out in conversations, in funerals, on Sundays, in small groups, on pastoral visits. All the way through the invitation and exhortation has been heard, strive to enter through the narrow door. And that invitation, because it comes from the Word of God and the Gospel, is attended with the power of the Holy Spirit not mere human rhetoric, but the conviction of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, compelling, willing people to enter through the narrow door. Uh, someone had a conversation with me a couple of weeks ago, uh, and they said, um, I'm not, uh, uh, not yet, in time. And I said to them, do you think that when you think it's the right time, you will be able to will yourself through that door? Isn't God perhaps speaking to you now? And that will that is being generated in your heart by the Holy Spirit will not potentially be there when you decide it's time. And wonderfully, over the past two months, some people have entered into salvation. Praise God for that. It's wonderful. Some people have died safe because they had entered through the door. Others are close to entering now, drawn by the invitation of Jesus. Pray they will enter in and be saved. Some, though, have turned away, counting the cost too high. Others have remained indifferent, unaware, it seems, of the danger of being outside. It is also, as we've seen through these months, a narrow door. People say no to salvation because they will not come to terms with their sinful nature and need of forgiveness. That takes real humility. People say no to salvation because they value the things of life more than heaven. People say no 
because when they understand how costly the Christian life is, they will not enter in. Two weeks ago, Roger preached on the section at the end of chapter 16, immediately preceding our passage today. The cost of entering in is high. The cost of saying no is infinitely higher. Literally, infinitely higher eternal judgment in hell. Now, many say no, but many say yes. Who? Not the people we might think. Not, for example, the religious leaders, the Pharisees in Luke's account. They expect by right by their religious credentials to be shaved. Not because they are bad people. Let's not demonize them. They just expect to be saved because of the way they live. But they're not. Who is saved? Let me just trace that through the section. 1329, people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. 1411, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And 1421, the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. People like chapter 15, the prodigal son who messed up his life and came to an end of himself and came back to God in repentance and contrition and met with the loving embrace of his father. Now, that's the content of the section. How does Luke conclude? With chapter 17, 1 to 10, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, the 12 of them. Read with me again verses 1 to 4, and we'll concentrate on verses 1 to 4. That's the, the heart of the teaching point, I think, in chapter 17. Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin. Now, I think a better translation of that would be stumbling blocks. So, stumbling blocks are sure to come, as we all know, that kind of trip us up in the Christian life. But woe to the one through whom they come. In other words, woe to the one who puts the stumbling block in front of somebody. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he went and he were cast into the sea, then he should cause one of these little ones to stumble or sin. Now, first of all, who are the little ones? Well, I think the little ones must be the people who have come in through the narrow door, the new believers, the people that uh, the Lord Jesus is referring to in 1329 and 1411 and 1421, the people uh, from the east and the west, those who are humble, the, the, the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Why does he call them these little ones? Why would you call a new Christian 
somebody who has come from a totally different world and way of life into the living church of Christ, into the kingdom of God. Why would Jesus call them these little ones? It's almost like a childlike term. The answer is because they are terribly vulnerable. Vulnerable because of who they are, where they are from, their background, in the eyes of the world, they might look like the last, the least. I think a good way to illustrate that is just to think of a new Christian coming into a church family like here. They feel and are vulnerable. They come in and look around, and perhaps they come from a very different background to us. They will almost certainly think that we are all sorted, and they are not, and there is no place for them. They don't know the answers to the questions. They might not follow along what's said up front. You can come inside and feel very much outside. They're vulnerable, objectively, because it is not certain that they will be welcomed and embraced and loved. They are vulnerable because they are new believers, young in their faith, perhaps without the discernment to know truth from error, susceptible to manipulation or persuasion. Think of a young Christian, a new Christian. They sit down with a minister or a small group leader and take what they say as gospel. You see why it's so important it is that we speak and teach from the Bible? The early days and weeks and months for a new believer are a risky time as they try to settle into a church, begin to read their Bibles, pray, address various issues in their lives that need attending to. One of the things we want to try to do as a church when someone becomes a Christian is to read with them one-to-one, just to protect them, to nurture them, to encourage them, to answer their questions. They are vulnerable. And maybe they have family who say, why on earth have you gone in? They are like little children, and the Lord Jesus is not patronizing in what he is saying. He is saying they need carefully cared for and looked after. The Lord Jesus is very protective of anyone who becomes a Christian. Now, they will face temptations to sin for sure, but here is the warning. Don't put stumbling blocks in their way. Stumbling blocks, that's, as I said, a better translation, are things that are put in someone's path causing them to trip up. How serious is it to do that? It would be better for the person who puts the stumbling block in someone's path if they hung a great big millstone, which is a massive stone, around their neck and jumped into the sea and drowned and died. I mean, that's a pretty straight statement, and it's meant to be. It's the kind of statement when Jesus makes a statement like that that you can imagine if you were with him live, people's heads would go down. 
They would look down. Now, who are the people Jesus is speaking about here who put, who put stumbling blocks? What kind of person would do it? What kind of person would put a stumbling block in someone's path and trip them up? Immediately, we think, not me. Or we think, not anyone here. Or we think people out there, we think Pharisees. But the Lord Jesus turns the spotlight on us very clearly, and Kat read this emphatically, appropriately, pay attention to yourselves. Make sure it's not you doing this, tripping people, even inadvertently, even unconsciously. Think about it. Is my attitude, my actions causing anyone to stumble? How could I be doing that? And let me suggest a number of practical outworkings of this for our consideration. Not because there is much of this around, but we need to be alert to this, especially as we pray and trust and see people come to faith and come into the church family. Put simply, are we welcoming those who come in? Are we welcoming whoever the Lord brings in? Whoever, very, very practically, have we spoken to them? Or will we? Do we see new people, people we do not know and think maybe when we see them and the masks come off, which will be very soon? Thank the Lord for that. Oh, it's just not my church anymore. Well, it never was any of our church. It is Christ's church, and whoever he brings in, we are to welcome gladly, especially new converts, precious in God's sight. Think of what Rog preached on two weeks ago, the passage immediately before. People are, people are going to, to hell. How wonderful is it when people are rescued from eternal hell and brought into the living church? just want to get them up here behind the lectern and say, so precious. Maybe we should. There are many cultures where you would. So precious. Don't cause them to stumble. Are we welcoming of that new person in our small group, concerned that they are settling in? Are we cautious and careful what we say? What does that person pick up by way of atmosphere? When they come to our homes, well, do they come to our homes, but when they come to their homes, are they sort of out of place or are they very much part of the culture and the family? Are they hearing us speak well of each other? Are they seeing us loving one another? Does the church family accord with what they hear being said? Is there a critical spirit, a judgmental attitude that they pick up? Now, there always will be some of that. Or is there a kindness, a gentleness, and a spiritual spirit? And all of that stuff really matters when new people come in to a church, new Christians, these vulnerable 
uh, new uh, Christians. Now, these things may seem pretty basic, but they do make a difference. You know, you can cause someone to stumble, and I've been picked up on this by an, an elder in the past, and he was right, and, uh, and he said to me, uh, when people arrive at church, um, you only look some people in the eye. It was a long time ago he said that. And he said, you can cause people to stumble by not looking at them when they walk past you, by ignoring them, not welcoming them, by seeing a seat next to them empty and sitting somewhere else. It's all very basic. Pay attention to yourselves, Jesus says. Let me read something I shared at the prayer meeting on Tuesday. Uh, let me just quote it. Significantly, it is almost two years since the first lockdown in March 2020. Everyone has been affected. Some people have left Shammers. Lots of new people have come. Some have joined online that are looking forward to being welcomed in person soon. Others have only recently begun to return to church in person, naturally cautious and anxious. Some have not yet returned. There are people who have got out of the habit of church. The next few months will be very important as we rebuild the Chalmers church family and community. With our face coverings removed, there will be lots of faces we do not know and some we haven't seen for a long time. It might not feel like our church at first or how it used to be, but all the while the Lord Jesus has been shepherding his people and building his church. As we return to normality, whatever that is, each of us will need to consciously look not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Speaking to those we do not know or haven't seen for a long time, loving one another selflessly and from the heart, Think of the next few months like planting a new church, where we sit, who we talk to, introducing and integrating people, simply being around on a Sunday. Chalmers is in good heart with so much to be thankful for, but two years is a long time to be disconnected and hidden behind a mask. Let's be careful, each of us, not to erect stumbling blocks, but it can be much more serious. Consider what we teach on Sundays in our small groups and one-to-one. It is so important that we teach what the Bible says, letting the Lord Jesus lead us, shepherd us by his word. The biggest stumbling block we can erect in front of a new believer or indeed any one of us is to teach stuff that is not in the Bible. That is by far and away the biggest stumbling block. Whether to add to it or subtract from it, the truth Truth brings stability. Not speaking truth causes to stumble. But speaking the truth must always be in love. Harshness, hot-headedness. Always speaking. Always speaking in a small group, but never listening. What are we saying? Are we speaking from God's word and how are we saying it? Now, what should you do in a church community, a church family, if you see people causing others to stumble? Verses 3 and 4. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. If someone is sinning in this way, causing people to stumble, then rebuke them in love to help them, to protect them and most importantly, to protect others from them. If they repent, forgive them. 
Rebuking others is a very, very hard thing to do. There are many things that run countercultural to the church. That is absolutely one of them. Absolutely. It's sometimes, though, it is necessary. Being rebuked is hard to hear. I think it's slightly harder to do. Some of you are nodding. It riles against our instincts, partly because we are sinners. Repenting of sin is hard to do. Forgiving people is hard. It seems from Jesus' teaching here, with his emphasis on forgiveness and forgiveness and forgiveness, that that is perhaps the hardest of all. Now, while Jesus' focus at the start of this concluding passage and this concluding section in the section of, of Luke is warning those who put stumbling blocks before new believers. He is, I think, also speaking in general terms about what a real, authentic church community is like. We want to be a place, Jesus says, where sin is acknowledged, repented of, and forgiven. We want to be a place where there is an honesty about our sinfulness. You see, when a church isn't honest and open about sin, not publicly, but just in the confidentiality of a small group or whatever, when you go around the table and people say, well, how are you? How are you getting on in the Christian life? And I say, well, 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 well. And that person just retreats into their corner thinking, I'm not. Be honest about sin. Open up and share. When a church is not honest and open about sin and dealing with it, then people who are perhaps new to faith will think they are outsiders and everyone else's life is sorted. You know, we often say that no one is ever fine because no one is ever fine. Let me add something else. No one is ever not battling sin. No one is ever not battling temptation. Let's be real about that, authentic, like a, a different world in here. Open up your hearts to others. But more than that, a community where there is a lack of repentance and a lack of forgiveness. Just think in a church family where there is sin that is not repented of and sin that has been repented of and has not been forgiven. That church family will be a disunited community. It will be a disunited church family. There will be friction. It will be introverted, not extroverted. It will not have time to look around on a Sunday for who is there because people will be avoiding each other. That's an extreme, but, well, is it? People holding resentments against one another. People out of fellowship with one another. How do we get out of fellowship with one another? Because we're all sinful and we're all different and we're all together with a spirit in us and we've got to say sorry and we've got to say, I forgive you. Such a powerful thing. Like when the son who left home, the prodigal, came to his senses, repented of his sin and returned to his father. He was welcomed by God, but not by the Christians in his church. By the elder brother. When that kind of thing happens in a church, then we will be consumed and turned in on and hardly notice the new believer. So please, all of us, let's attend to this. If we have wronged someone, then repent and seek their forgiveness. If someone has wronged you and they have repented, then for Christ's sake, forgive them and show that you have. Take them out for coffee and keep on forgiving them if needs be, seven times in a day.
And if needs be, have the courage and love to rebuke a brother or sister who is sinning, perhaps causing others to stumble. My only uh, requirement of Roger and Jay, well, I have many requirements of them, but my number one requirement when they came was please tell me the truth because they get to see me more closer than anyone else. Tell me the truth. And what's it like as a staff team? It's not like sort of spotting sin and saying that. It's just a gentle, a gentle, warm, and loving accountability. It's so much better. Now, as we finish, the last two little teaching blocks in verses 5 and 6 and 7 to 10 are like postscripts to the main teaching point. How on earth, how on earth, as we sit here, can we be this kind of Christian community, devoid of all of this stuff where there are stumbling blocks, devoid of critical spirits, judgmentalism, just basic moaning and all that kind of stuff that just turns people off, not welcoming. I don't know these people. Who are they? It's not my church. How do we get over all of that? Well, we need a bucket load of help. Increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say this to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And the simple application of that is, please, Lord Jesus, will you make us, will you render us the kind of church where there are no stumbling blocks? And then finally, remember each one of us and all of us as believers that in obeying the Lord, we are unworthy servants who have only done our duty. Verses 7 through Uh, uh, 10. Let me read verse 10. Uh, So you also, when you have done all that you are commanded, what do we, uh, what's our kind of heartbeat as we walk home today? Oh, we are worthy. We are worthy servants. We've done well. So uh, we'll go home today after Luke 17, 1 to 10, after gathering around the Lord's table and we will be. And this is not to do us down. It's just to build us up. We are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. Now, how is this a fitting conclusion to the whole section from 1322? Remember the question that began? Lord, will those who are saved be few? What a vitally important question. Who will be saved? Well, remember the Lord Jesus' first answer back in Luke 13. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, and he will answer you, I do not know where you have come from. Strive to enter through the narrow door. That is what we will always proclaim. Many will seek to enter, though, and not be able. For there will come a time when the master will shut the door. That is his prerogative. But let's be vigilant lest we shut the door on people, which is not our prerogative, by putting stumbling blocks in their way. And always remembering it is by God's grace that we have entered in. We are unworthy servants called to obey the Lord. Pay attention to yourselves. Let's pray. Father, we are unworthy servants here by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
with the Holy Spirit indwelling us in all the capacity for the humility and the welcome that your word commends. Will you help us? And, and you can, and you promise to do this. Will you help us not to put stumbling blocks before people who are new to the faith? Will you help us to relish people joining us and us joining them? New believers, folks who have come back to the Lord, folks who have found a spiritual home here. And as we take our masks off and see people we do not know, may our heartbeat and our impulse be, Lord Jesus, thank you for bringing them into this church family and embrace them and love them and care for them. And help us, Lord, protect those who are new to faith. Help us guard them and keep them. Help us to rebuke, repent, and forgive. And help us to serve. For Jesus' sake. Amen.